Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Okay, cats, all present and accounted for? Yeah, hey, I'm really proud of you, buddy. Boys, you didn't good at the dance center. So where are they? Unwind action. Any sign of Tony? The invisible man. Hey, Rick, what do you think the sharks are going to ask for? Mercy. Just rubber hoses, maybe, huh? Relax, little man. You tell him, Daddy-O. I'm ready. Easy, cool. Oobaloo. Chuck, chuck. Crack up, Jack. Oobaloo. Reflook. In a tight spot, you're going to need every man you can get. No. An American tragedy. Pow! Oh, poo. Oobaloo poo. Yeah. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. We're, We're back. back. <laughs> We're back at the same time. It's What season is this? This is like season five or something, isn't it? We've been doing this for so. five years. Wow. And the hills are alive today. Don't you don't you feel that energy? I do. Well, I, I also feel the energy of of all of these huge 60s movies. I feel the weight of all of these huge <laughs> 60s movies that we haven't talked about yet. And so that was a, a big impetus behind this first episode of the new season. And all subsequent episodes, right? We're going to try and really knock down some heavy hitters this year yeah and fill some gaps hit some genres we haven't uh, concentrated on too much and get to the stuff that we haven't been getting to uh, enough which i think we declared last year and then we like went ahead and just did the most indulgent <laughs> <laughs> we were like yeah let's watch ukrainian films and egyptian films but those are such good episodes as a watcher those are my favorites as a listener i don't know if People are digging them as much as I dig them, but... Uh, Let us know. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, one for us, one for the people with money, I guess. And that's what this episode is. No, which is not fair because I actually, for the most part, I loved all six of these Robert Wise movies we watched for this episode. So it's not like these are bad movies. They're just some of the best known movies of the 60s. I mean, you've got two like iconic, monolithic, huge, huge blockbuster 60s movies here. Um, you got a couple like literary adaptations that are were super popular at the time and now, maybe not quite hitting the, the heights of his two, you know, huge musicals. And then you've got a couple sort of forgotten movies, one justly forgotten, sort of famous mostly for being a bomb and the other a unjustly forgotten movie because it was kind of a bummer. So this is, yeah, this is me sort of trying to tease you and, and, and uh, get you to say, Oh, which movie is he talking about here? And uh, we'll, we'll get to it. But yeah, we got some big stuff. We got some medium stuff. We got some small stuff and it's all worth talking about. So let's get to it. Yeah. Well, Robert Wise, He's, I mean, he's a, he's a professional. Like I sort of consider him a, like William Wyler, a sort of journeyman director who is just really smart, puts a lot of care into everything that he makes. Everything is really well thought out, knows the best way to put what's in a script onto the screen, but doesn't necessarily have a personality of his own, is not one of these like, auteur type directors where you see themes running from one film to another part of the I, I think part of what might be interesting 
for this episode is to see if the two of us can sort of see some themes running through his work. Any, you know, some things that we can latch on to that, that says, you know, Oh, this is what Robert Wise is all about. Because, you know, at this point I, you know, other than being a top notch professional, I, I don't really get what his thing is, but maybe by the end we'll, we'll have figured out what his thing is. At the at earliest part of his career, he's uh, you know he's sort of well known as the uh, he was the editor of Citizen Kane, and did a lot of the the optical printing you know special effects type stuff on that film. And he you know made some beloved classics between 1941 when that movie was made in the 60s. You know as a director, um, you know the setup or the day the Earth stood still, run silent, run deep. I Want to Live, Odds Against Tomorrow. These are some of his big 50s movies that are still well-loved and well-liked today. But the 60s was really when he... Like, Yo, shout out to Blood on the Moon. That movie rules. Blood on... I don't I don't think I... No, I don't know that movie. What's that movie? It's, it's like a Western noir with Robert Mitchum. Huh. It's great. 1948. All right. I'll, I'll seek that out. Saw it at Film Forum. Anyhow. But yeah, the 60s was when he really knocked it out of the park and had a, a string of hits. And that's why he's somebody we got to talk about. Was he a figure you were you had any associations with other than Blood on the Moon, I guess, before watching uh, the movies for this episode? Star Trek, the motion picture. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, besides the, the Orson Welles stuff, the... Um... In Star Trek. <laughs> Funny enough, I mean, The Day the Earth Stood Still is a great movie. I love that movie. I've had many a uh, a hard drive named after Gort. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great hard drive name. <laughs> now you're now you're all about Klaatu Barata Nikto. Yeah, and I you know love that love Army of Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, funny enough. All of his biggest 60s movies, never seen him. <laughs> Had you so, seen any of these movies before? I, The Haunting, I'm trying to remember if I had seen it or if my mother just talks about it constantly <laughs> because she does. I thought I had seen it and then I watched it and I was like, no, I don't remember half of this. I But like parts of it were really familiar but I'd never seen The Sound of Music <laughs> and I'd never seen West Side Story. <laughs> and this is the kind of shit that like, I like to admit publicly because <laughs> even though it makes people think less of me, the truth is that what happens is like here I've seen, I watched over 400 movies last year and, you know, I typically watch over at least 300 movies for the last 10 years like every year i you know i try my best and still there's these like big movies i haven't seen and it has nothing to do with anything other than my idea of like well that west side story is always gonna be there you know i don't have to i'll get to it and then i just never do and it's terrible because i you know there was nothing in west side story or a sound of music that was new to me i know all the songs I know the plots uh, for the most part. Sound of Music had some question marks in it. Um, <laughs> you know, I know the actors and and so it's like it's not it, it also like it was like 
you know, for a while I hadn't seen Jaws, but it's like, you know, if you're alive, you've seen Jaws. It's just like, you can't escape clips from this movie. So yeah, no, this was actually, this was great for a great excuse for me to knock off some really embarrassing things that I hadn't seen. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't seen the original, you've seen these things spoofed a million times. So much, so much. Um, well, West Side Story is where we're going to start here. Uh, 1961. Everybody knows the story of West Side Story. It's a remake of Romeo and Juliet, but instead of the Capulets and the Montagues, we've got the Jets and the Sharks, two warring gangs in the Upper West Side, um, Washington Heights, uh, Manhattan. You know, you've got uh, Tony, who's the Romeo character, who uh, is a you know, sort of was an important figure in the Jets, but has sort of like decided that he wants to, you know, get a job and make something of himself. So he sort of left that the the gang scene behind. But uh, but the Jets are having uh, you know some some turf disputes with the uh, the Sharks, who are the the Puerto Rican gang in the area, and they they want to rumble and riff, um, played by Russ Tamblin, uh, in it tries to get Tony back, you know, to, to get involved in this rumble. It's like, you know, this is important. We need, we need you, Tony. And so there's this big dance. The cops have, have confronted, but the jets and the sharks and have said, you guys just got to get along. So they go, they go to this dance together, knowing that it's sort of the, the build up to this, this rumble they're going to have afterwards. And Tony agrees, you know, riffs his best friend and, and Tony played by Richard Bamer, you know, they're both, Twin Peaks stars. Uh, I was going to say the whole <laughs> cast of Twin Peaks was just West Side Story. And uh, yeah, he agrees to go. And then Bernardo, who's the leader of the Sharks, played by George Jacuris, his younger sister, Maria, played by Natalie Wood. This is her first dance, and she's so excited to go. And of course, Maria is the the Juliet figure, and they go to the dance, and you know it's love at first sight, and they see each other on the dance floor and the entire background disappears and they only have eyes for each other. And it's like they're floating in space and it's, they're clearly destined for each other. But of course, both families, both gangs are really opposed to this, uh, the, the two of them coupling. You know, and so it just sort of follows the, uh, the, the Romeo and Juliet storyline from there. And it's great. It's um, this movie is the dancing uh, choreographed by Jerome Robbins is amazing. It makes it's it just fills me with so much joy to watch this like snap dancing these like choreographed knife fights where it's just there's nothing like it. And I don't know. I mean, I guess. Bob Fosse is, you know, sort of comes closest to the style of dancing, but it really is its own thing. It's just this Jerome Robbins hipster dance style that's so athletic and so such a joy to watch. The score is great. You know all the songs. 
and I've got no beefs with this movie except that the two leads are the least interesting part of it. Like they're good <laughs> enough. I like both actors enough so that they keep the story moving forward. And when tragic things happen, you feel sad. And when happy things happen, you feel happy. But really, it's about the supporting cast. Like Rita Moreno as Bernardo's girlfriend, Anita is the real star of this show. And yeah, George Shakiris and Russ Tamblin. Like it's all just the other people in the gangs make this movie something special. Like you are excited for the romantic Romeo and Juliet scenes to be over with. So you can get back to the gang fighting and the, and the songs like, uh, America is, it's probably my, you, that's your, that's your thing with it. Whenever we do a musical, right. It's uh, you, you ask me what my favorite tune is yeah. and uh, America has got to be it for me. What's, what's your favorite song from West side story? Um, I think America, I mean, America is definitely like the, it's the funniest because it's like the realest. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's, and it's great. It's great to, you know, Rita Moreno absolutely steals the show, like you said. I, I think my problem, though, and the reason, honestly, the real reason why I hadn't watched West Side Story for so long is that I don't like Romeo and Juliet. I don't really care about Shakespeare in general, which is not totally true because I kind of I love like Hamlet and shit. But like. I don't like Romeo and Juliet and I've never liked a version of Romeo and Juliet. And I think the fact that this is based on Romeo and Juliet is really what drags the movie <laughs> down because I kind of liked Richard Boehmer and I like Natalie Wood, uh, you know, all of the brown face stuff as aside, which, and you know, I, I w you just got to brush it aside because it's just nothing else to do with it. Though I will say it's very funny to me always and, and not, you know, it's like funny in a like Jesus way, like a, is the fact that, you know, nobody can curse, nobody can, uh, you know, show too much skin. Nobody can, you know, everyone has to be, you know, pretty conservative, but they can just say like <laughs> the gnarliest, <laughs> most racist things, most <laughs> racist. Yeah. Words, uh, you know, and, and as long as it's not about white people, it's fine. You know, like, and you're like, geez, like there's shit that they say in this where I'm like, you can't say this now really. Like, I, I mean, you could kind of, but it would, it would be like a kind of moment. Like, Oh, that's a real bad guy. Cause you use the, the S word. <laughs> <laughs> Though I also, I at the same time, I really love that they use bugging all the time instead of what they're clearly saying fucking. <laughs> uh, it was amazing. And the thing that really struck me about watching this for the first time, you know, to watch the whole, sit down and watch the entire thing, uh, as opposed to just clips from it. You know, I feel like the all of the the ripoffs of this and the riffs of it. And I actually haven't seen the remake that Steven Spielberg just did because I was like, nah, I got to see the original. I can't start <laughs> with Spielberg's. So I can't speak to that one. But, um, you know, the thing is, is always the the joke about them, you know, like snapping while they're like, you know, gang fighting. And, and it's always like, you know, corny theater kid kind of stuff is, is kind of the, you know, the portrayal of it. But when you're watching it, it just, it's great. It's it, I'm totally with you. It's it's really like this. This movie is brilliantly shot and it's so modern. Uh, you know, I was thinking about our musical episode about uh, 64 and thinking about how we kind of like group those from stodgy to like the most the realest of the real. I would put West Side Story like firmly on the real side 
<laughs> well, there's a lot of great location stuff when it's not clearly still... on studio sets. Right. It mixes the two really well. And even but even when it's doing studio stuff, it, the way that the camera's moving, I mean, there's so much, all the outdoor stuff is amazing. It's straight up amazing. Like uh, it, it's like awe-inspiringly shot. Like I, I wish that more musicals, I'm even thinking about like um, in the Heights movie. Mm -hmm. Did you see that? Yeah. That came out recently. Like, that's clearly trying to do what this movie had already done in 61 and it doesn't get anywhere near it. Hmm. I think there are good there's, sequences in that movie. There's good sequences, but they're not like they, they always feel they 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 feel like we're on a stage but now it's outside. This one really feels like they're outdoors. You know, it, it's like people are dancing and they're moving with the, the shape of the landscape. And it's not about like we had to clear out the entire street, even though they did do that. But like it's really about like them moving with the shape of a chain link fence and moving with the shape of the sidewalk. And, the, you know, there's just like the the dancing in this is just so brilliant and it's so brilliantly shot all of those dolly shots really keep up the energy of of the movement i love hearing you getting excited about dancing you hate dancing <laughs> i don't hate dancing here's the thing i i like dancing i just uh ballet i don't fully understand but uh i like dancing when it's dynamic and fun you know and 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 this you know all of these like dutch angles and all the rumble scenes uh, you know, everything is just like if everything is moving in the right way, you know, like my favorite. Actually, I would say that if, if I had to point out like my favorite kind of dancing, it's when you get like funk bands and like the whole band is moving in, in unison. You know, like that's the stuff that I love. Like I love Stop Making Sense is like a favorite mm -hmm. movie of mine. I don't just like dance. It's just that when it's you know, this this is actually exciting dance to me. It just takes a lot to kind of impress me, I guess, is what it comes down to with dance. And and not that I'm have so great at it. It's just like I have this like narrow vision of what I want to see. And this fully falls into it for me. Like this is exactly the sort of dynamic and, and inexpressive. That's the thing, too. It's like they're not just like dancing because it's a it's a set piece, which is what I thought is. is you know, fun as a lot of stuff in like in the Heights. And I, I just bring that up just because it's, you know, something that was shot also on, on the streets in New York for this one. Like, you know, people are dancing with like purpose. Like you're really, you're, you're getting a feeling from what's happening and it's not just a set piece. It's not just like, you know, we're dancing and it looks cool because it's outdoors. It's like, no, like we are moving and we just happen to be dancing while we're doing it. Like, we are on a mission. 95% yeah. of the appeal of this movie is the dancing. It's just so exhilarating. Like, it's not... what's What makes it work is that the rest of it is not bad, and the songs are good, but it's it's it really is the dancing. Like, you cannot deny it. And how it's shot. I mean, it's the... It, it, if it... The dancing is so great and had, you know, Robert Wise uh, and... Jerome Robbins not really leaned into that and, and tried to break, they, they're clearly breaking the rules. And that's, what's so wonderful is, is, you know, they, they're not getting stuck in how it should be. And they're really like, some of these shots are like, you can't even see the people as well, but you're seeing the movement and that in itself, it's just, it becomes almost abstract in parts and, and it works so well. Yeah. 
the other thing I actually really liked uh, that I and that was I think the only thing that was new to me uh, as far as the the music sequences go was um, I'm I'm spacing on which song it was, but where they are at the dance and and Natalie Woods, you know, when when Maria sees Tony for the first time and they're walking towards each other and, you know, the it, the lights kind of go down and, and you only see them. And then the lights fully go down and you see this like stars come out and it's clearly on a, st- uh, you know, a stage and, and um, it's, it's almost a bit old fashioned in a way, but it really ruled. Mm. <laughs> that actually kind of stands out for me as a bit too old fashioned. And I think that's why I, I mentioned that earlier is the, you know, it, it does kind of stand out from the rest of this movie. That's so kind of gritty I would have loved it on a stage, <laughs> but I'm with you. Like in, in comparison, it, it, it doesn't hold a candle, but like I, I, that one in particular, I thought was just visually striking and it worked it like it was old fashioned, but I also, you know, I yeah, felt it. It yeah. worked. I don't know. And the, just the, the art direction and the whole thing, I think has a lot to do with how it's able to combine the like clear studio sets. Like you've got these vast expanses of like, rooftops and Manhattan rooftops and just these like really unrealistic spaces, but they, you know, you jump from that to clearly like something shot on the streets of Manhattan and it all, it it seems to work together. And this, there's this kind of this, this graffiti style that you really associate with this movie, like this chalk on, on bricks style that it that keeps coming back and it's sort of the end credits yeah the end credits are great but amazing yeah but that chalk on brick style is you know they they keep it they have it consistent from the like street scenes to the studio scenes and it it really yeah. keeps it all in this zone even this like you know starlit dance scene that that we're talking about it all you know nothing jumps out as not appropriate to the film like it all works as a whole really well there's definitely a dip in energy from the street scenes to the the stagier scenes but at the same time they do such a good job and they do they do enough cutting uh of people like looking out of windows when you can tell it's an actual window versus a set mm-hmm. and you can because you can see things moving down the street <laughs> you know and, and things like that and it's like there's enough of that that it ended up just the the energy is, is pretty consistent. And for a movie that's long, it never feels long. No, it flies by and it's just, uh, you know, all the energy on the screen that really makes it move. And that's just the honesty, I think, that, you know, there there is something about, and especially thinking about all of those 1950s gang movies and rumble movies and, and the way that this kind of doesn't shy away from just showing you how kind of nasty that life actually is, even though it's being expressed in such an abstract Broadway kind of a way. And I think that kind of comes through from the the script of, you know, the play. Yeah. I think it's a great, it's a really clever adaptation and really actually kind of moving adaptation, you know, other than Romeo and Juliet themselves, those characters not being particularly interesting. It uses the subject of the play, like this message of, peace and like understanding between people and like not you know kids kids finding a purpose not just you know fighting on the streets like it uses the source material in a really intelligent way and i think that's another part of what i really like about this movie and when you get to the tragic 
finale, it's not just like, oh, here here comes the tragic ending that we are all expecting. It actually is really, it really serves a purpose. You feel like it's not just these plot mechanisms that make people die. It's that, you know, you see how all all of these characters are driven to do what they did and how this conclusion was sort of actually inevitable. Like the, you know, the Shakespeare play, you know, is suggesting that all of this is inevitable. And it, and it has this message of peace too, peace between people. Stop, stop fighting. You know, everybody should get along, but it's sort of lost in this old, you know, this Elizabethan milieu of, uh, of the original play, but feels really like current and poignant in, you know, setting it in the world of New York city, poor kid gang warfare. It, uh, it works in a way that, uh, that I, I was worried rewatching this movie that I was going to see the seams a little bit like, oh, they really had to force that a bit to, to fit this into the Romeo and Juliet formula. But it not, it all works, I, I, I think. I really liked Doc, the, the drugstore owner. Yeah. Where he's like, why not basketball? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it works. I mean, for it's like... Uh, you know, I like Broadway. I like I like plays. I like musicals a lot, but they can be very, very corny. <laughs> uh, and sometimes that's what you want from a musical. But I don't know that that would have worked in this one. And, and they really keep it real. I mean, there's sexual assault <laughs> and slurs and uh, stuff that you wouldn't actually expect them to be showing so clearly in a 1961 film. And yet here we are and it all works. Yeah, it feels very progressive. It feels like it could have come out in 69 and and you would have been way more impressed with it. Yeah. I'll still never watch the Spielberg remake. It's you hate Spielberg. I hate Spielberg, but I just am not interested this movie. I'm interested. This movie other than the, than the brown face and some words that you couldn't get away with in a current adaptation. It's, it's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Other than the egregious racism. Yeah. uh... (laughs) Well, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's unfortunately, it's a brilliant movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, from West Side Story, we take a real dip. I, you know, so funny enough, I really wasn't terribly certain what to expect. I tried to go into a lot of these movies blind just for kicks. And I fully thought that the next film, Two for the Seesaw from to be a musical (laughs) (laughs) well it is a broadway play adaptation i know but i like i was like are they are they gonna have robert mitchum sing (laughs) oh he's great he's a calypso singer right have you heard his music yeah he has a whole album he has i think he has multiple albums but no he doesn't sing but this is a weird little movie also like strangely real like strangely aggressive and depressing in a way that you really wouldn't expect from 1962. But the plot is a man named Jerry, who's Robert Mitchum, 
he just moved to New York city from Nebraska and he is trying to, he's getting, trying to run away from wherever he came from. And he gets this, this crummy apartment and he calls up a friend and shows up at the, at his house. And there's a big party going on where he just happens to meet or happens to overhear this woman named Giddle, who's played by Shirley MacLaine. And he, clearly like has a crush on her. He manages to figure out her phone number. He calls her and tries to ask her out. And it takes, there's a, some miscommunication because he asks her out in like a really bizarre way. And she's like, who the hell are you? <laughs> like we didn't even speak, like they speak at the party for all of five seconds. And uh, finally he convinces her to, to, you know, go out on a date. And um, they kind of like, they hit it off, but they hit it off in this way where they're both sort of like, miserable and he's really really pushy it turns out that he is separated from his wife who he is you know on the way to divorcing but they haven't been divorced yet and his wife keeps calling him uh you know there she's already moved on but she just you know is very overbearing is what he calls her meanwhile Giddle is like this dancer and she is just trying to you know live her own life she seems to be pretty content honestly on her own she's you know seems to have a rich enough uh you know social life and and is dating people but jerry's just really pushy about you know like we're we're we belong together we got to get together he uh starts throwing money at her because he's a he's a lawyer and uh you know he's gonna study for the bar exam in new york and uh tells her you know like this is all you need is money then uh you know let's let me rent you a studio and and you can become a dance teacher and yeah i mean like this whole movie is just this kind of push and pull or <laughs> the seesaw <laughs> of these two trying to figure out you know the timing of their relationship like Giddle is interested in him after a while but she has uh clear hang-ups about previous relationships she has hang-ups about disappointment she has hang-ups about you know men and meanwhile, he is like so pushy, if not aggressive, in a in a really unattractive way. <laughs> uh, and I like Robert Mitchum, but even then, it's like he's like a lot in this movie, and he's just basically telling her like, "Here I am, like you know, if you don't like you know, I can do everything for you. You should be in love with me." And yet, well, I don't know how much should I spoil about this. Um, don't because I love this movie and yeah. I want people to see it. Like, I know you didn't like it as much as I did, but I thought this was, it was, it's so far exceeded my expectations that I, I just had to, I, I raved about it to quite a few people. It's, um, I mean, it's yeah. So I want to hear what, what it is that you love about this movie, because for me, I didn't dislike this movie. I thought it was actually quite good, but it was so depressing. I, I mean, I was really impressed with the story, which is essentially like, I'll sum up as, you know, relationships sometimes just don't work because of timing. It is like there's more to it, but that's also sort of what's happening here. And that's very rare, I think, to see in film. I'm trying to really think of movies that spend this much time, you know, with this back and forth of will they, won't they, and then finally comes to like a very realistic conclusion that I think happens way more often in reality than, uh, you know, the happily ever after unlike licorice pizza 
that is that go on make the comparison i mean it's 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 another it's a romance where the timing is off and they keep like trying to make it work even though the timing is off but i also think this movie is about a lot more than that like really on the on the surface it's about like jerry has run away from his wife because he's gotten his lawyer job from her father and he's sort of just been you know mooching off the family he hasn't had to work very hard to get far in life and he's just been given all this stuff and he's tired like he just wants to break out and be on his own and he he wants to be the one to support somebody and Giddle, on the other hand, is the opposite. Like she's had all of these relationships where she's so mothering and so supportive of these men who are unworthy of her. And so there is something about them getting together and how we want each of them to sort of get what they're looking for. We want Jerry to be able to provide for somebody and we want Shirley to be willing to take from somebody. You don't necessarily like there's something about them together that doesn't feel quite right like they're from different worlds she's like this hip new yorker and he is this like hip new york jew yeah. specifically of course they'd never cast one but and he's this the square midwesterner but you you know knowing what they sort of need from a partner makes it seem like oh it's perfect these two have exactly what the other person needs for them to get along but they also are like so mismatched in a lot of ways he's a a jerk in a lot of ways and she's you know so just like independent and really just wanting to make it on her own and also just you know she doesn't want to be supported she wants to be the one to make her own way in the world and you admire her for that but you also think you know let yourself you know you're she's she's got an ulcer and needs to be cared for and she's not taking care of herself and he's there for her for that and it's it's just i mean it's these ups and downs of their relationship like it really feels like a broadway play you never like there's a certain unrealism well they're always in an apartment you know there's always like it's a very like two people talking in a room kind of a movie but there there is enough variation i think that that you know like wise does a good job of getting you out of the apartment uh, and and at least giving you putting you in other apartments. <laughs> and there's that one brilliant shot where it's uh, essentially it's a split screen, but it looks like they just built a a set to look like a, a split screen. Right, because the camera will move from one apartment to the other, just moving over yeah. this what looks like a wall between them. So it must be it must have been built that way. But it's a good effect, and it's, and it's nice. Yeah, it looks really nice, and it's for when they're talking on the phone. But the the ups and downs, like it's stagey, but in the right way. Like it feels enough connected to life and to, you know, very close observation of how relationships work and how people get along with each other and how they're, you know, this push and pull of, of need and want. And obviously the fact that it's it's a pretty depressing movie appealed to me because that's that's sort of my thing. And and we've we've uh always sort of disagreed on <laughs> this is your like virginia wolf redux yeah i mean you you can never fully embrace something that's totally cynical and depressing and that's that's my bag so <laughs> i get it but i thought this was was great and really unjustly overlooked like nobody talks about two for the seesaw it didn't do anything at the time it was a hit play wise i'm sure thought it was a, a sure thing to make it into a movie and he did an incredible job, but it's just too much of a bummer for people to have embraced it. Now it's just totally forgotten. Shirley MacLaine is amazing. This movie she's, I always forget how much I love Shirley MacLaine. Like growing up in, in the eighties, like she's always been this like kook who wrote books about 
people she was in in previous lives and i always forget how her books rule (laughs) (laughs) but she's so good especially in her like leading lady prime she's just so good she never fails except for that one uh that one football in the in the middle east harem movie but uh i can't even remember the name now that was an early cinema 60 movie but uh you know otherwise she's brilliant and we need to watch all of her movies because she's just so endearing. Like you, from the second she appears on the screen, you want what's best for her. You want her to find what she needs. Find, you know, she just has that face that makes makes you want the best for her immediately. And you know that Robert, that Jerry, Robert Mitchum is not that person. But you also think, well, maybe. And you w- no, <laughs> that's the problem with this here. I have two big problems with this. The first one is that Mitchum is just such a complete piece of shit. And if he wasn't Robert Mitchum, I really don't know what there would be here. You know what I mean? Like there, there's nothing for her. There's absolutely nothing. And it's not just that, like, I, on one hand, I think it's kind of interesting to again, to portray this relationship where you have this guy who's a complete piece of shit. I mean, like he, he like, Shows up at her apartment. He asks for money. She says, oh, if you need it, okay, let me, you know, I'll, I'll do you a favor. And he says, oh, what's wrong with you, idiot? Why would you give me money if you don't, you know? And, it, and she's like, what? You know, it's like, yeah. he's just constantly berating her. You know, he calls her fat. He slaps her in the face. He calls her a slut. I mean, like, it's just this constant, you know, he's just always berating her and belittling her and then saying, rely on me. He's just like, you know, a, a total portrait of toxic you know, boyfriend kind of stuff. Plus he, he casually says he has bed bugs. And when he's sitting on her bed, which I would <laughs> burn him alive and kicked him out of the apartment so fucking fast. But like, you know, so he, he's just such an awful person. Well, I think what endeared Jerry to me a little bit is that he's, he's Robert Mitchum. <laughs> well, he's Robert Mitchum, which, you know, I love Robert Mitchum, but I mean, he would have been better if it was Paul Newman who was originally cast in the role at least you would have seen you know more of an yeah, attraction well, between <laughs> between them Though, but, but Shirley MacLaine and Robert Mitchum had a thing after this they they were in a, a, a romantic relationship for a while after this hmm. but go on but Jerry's at the end of his rope like he is like it's either when he calls Giddle when he like finally like he picks up the phone several times and finally gets up the nerve to just be like, it's either this or I jump off the Brooklyn Bridge. And so he calls her and he's desperate, but he doesn't want to seem desperate. He doesn't want to feel like he's in need, but he sort of eventually it comes out. It's like, you're you're my last hope. Can you just a little bit of kindness from somebody, anybody will keep me going. Otherwise, that's that's it for me. I'm done. And Mitchum is enough of a like sad sack loser that he really pulls that off well you feel like yeah this is (laughs) this guy has nothing to live for and you're glad that he makes this connection he's awful for her in certain ways and just a jerk and it's it's sort of this like nothing to lose attitude of his where he's sort of abusive and he's like i want your help i don't want your help i want your help and it's that back and forth where i don't know i just could sort of connect to that it's like really needing help but being really embarrassed to ask for help. And I, I think I connected to his, his character for that reason. 
Well, so here's the thing is that I actually I like everything that you're you're saying. Like I thought that was all very interesting and that is why eventually you kind of see what's like how this is working in a way. It's obviously again it's not a good relationship, but you can see how it how it kind of happens and how they both fall into it. And I think it's this like bonding over misery, which I think is always an interesting relationship dynamic and surprise surprise it never works. <laughs> But the thing that the other thing that really bugged me was the ending of this movie. And I won't spoil it, but I will say that there is a a happy ending and I'll put an asterisk on that. And I just thought they, they put a bow on something that I, I honestly wish it had just been misery. I wish it had just like gone even further into the misery, but I don't think that they could have done that in 62 and maybe they already got enough of it and they just wanted to you know give you like something to hold on to because what Gittle goes through to me is like life-altering shit <laughs> like I just don't I can't see her not being ruined by this and that except is what kind of bugged me because I felt like it was it was a little too it was like too optimistic. Like, I don't know. I thought it worked in the way that plays often work where it, the resolution is the resolution that you want, even though it's not kind of the, the resolution that you're hoping for. I'm not exactly sure what I was hoping for, but in, in that the way it ends is, is sort of explaining to you, well, here's really what this movie is about. It's what, they each like what they have given to each other makes them be able to move on with their lives. Like they're both kind of stuck and they're both at dead ends and their sort of toxic relationship allowed them to see that, okay, this is not right, but now I sort of understand what I need. Whereas I didn't understand before. And that's, you know, that's simplifying. And it also is, it is kind of a, you know, putting a bow on it. But I also think, it works like it. It skips past, I think, like a little bit too much of the misery, <laughs> which is just weird. It's just like, you know, and I get it. Like, I, you know, you're right. Like, you know, you can't sit there and I, it would have been terrible if they had tacked another hour just to show uh, how long it took her to get to whatever point she gets to. I just I don't know. Like, I feel like the story of this relationship was like two people that were trying to get into something one person conning another person into being in a relationship, the other person doing it thinking, well, this could be fun. And then just getting wrecked, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just, it's a car wreck and it's not easy to untangle yourself from stuff like that to get to that positive point. And so like, that's what really bugs me, mm. but I don't want to, I don't know. I, it's just, it, to me, I guess it was like everything leading up to it felt more realistic. And then it kind of has this like and scene, <laughs> which I don't know, bum me out. But it was interesting. I don't know. I'm, I'm mixed on this because, again, like I really appreciated, especially, you know, I think a movie in 62 talking about dealing with divorce is also very interesting because that was such a taboo certainly more so for the the women than the men but to see it from a you know from Mitchum's angle I thought was very interesting well and also dealing with one night stands in a really matter of fact way I thought was yeah. kind of interesting where their their meet cute is basically her saying well you're gonna spend the night 
you know, other movies will hint at one night stands. And if you're in the know, it's very clear what's going on. But this movie like spells it out in a way where there's no story if you're not seeing, oh, they just met today and they're are they going to sleep together or not? Like that's the whole that's the crux of the scene. And it does feel really modern for a for a Hollywood movie in 1962. Yeah, I mean, but between West Side Story and this, I'm like, Robert Wise, you're like pushing the boundaries, man. Yeah. Well, I think that might be his key to success a little bit in the 60s as he sort of knows exactly what he can get away with at, at you know, at any given time in his career and the 60s is right where he knew how to how to ride that line. Although his biggest hit of the 60s is is pretty cloyingly wholesome but well, well yeah i was gonna say we're gonna get to to where where all of his progressiveness goes but before then we have uh, the haunting Adaptation of the uh, the Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, which has been remade several times. There was that Liam Neeson, Catherine Zeta Jones, Owen Wilson version from the late '90s. But you know, you've seen this this haunted house story a million times. But this is you know Shirley Jackson's novel had just come out a few years before, and this was the first of these. You know that you've got this scientist who's studying the paranormal who has found uh this house this hill house where um you know there's a i i could go through the whole history of the of the of this house but basically it's sort of one freaky death after another and the uh sort of heir to the house sort of lived in the house for for years and years never leaving and eventually it got you know passed down to the housekeeper and you know everything is sort of shrouded in the supernatural and this paranormal researcher is, has been given this opportunity to study this house that people say, oh, yeah, it's haunted. There are all sorts of weird things that happen there. And he's got this list of people that he wants to you know, stay in the house, people who he thinks are particularly attuned to the paranormal, the supernatural. And, uh, you know, he's got a list of you know, 20 people to invite. And it comes down to just two people who actually accept his invitation. His, his name is uh, Dr. Marquay. And the two people who accept his invitation are uh, Eleanor Lance, played by Julie Harris, who experienced some a poltergeist when she was younger. There, you know, some some mysterious force was throwing stones at her house, and she, you know, she's sort of spent her entire adult life caring for her ailing mother, and she's, you know, this is sort of her opportunity. Her mother has just died, and this is first her first opportunity to sort of break out on her own and do something. So she accepts the invitation. And uh, the other person who comes is uh, Claire Bloom, who's Theodora, Theo, who's a psychic. That's her profession. And uh, But uh, Marquay is pretty convinced by her. But she's shown enough psychic ability where he thinks that maybe she does have something. You know, he's he's very scientific about it. He said that, you know, this is, you know, everybody frowns upon this area of study. But he knows that, like, if he can just, you know, get the right people to experience and and document what's going on in this house that he'll he'll actually have you know he'll be taken seriously the woman who owns the house insists that her nephew come also to this 
experiment. So Russ Tamblin is is also there as as somebody who uh, you know not a believer in the supernatural at all, and he's just there to make sure that these people are you, you know are above board, aren't messing around at all. So it's the four of them, and they they go they spend the night in this house, and almost immediately the first night there's you know voices and banging and knocking, and there, there's there's some stuff going on. But what this movie kind of does brilliantly is that you're never really sure if any of this is actually happening or if it's all just Eleanor's experience, like her paranoia, her imagination. It's if it's all happening in her head. And she's sort of convincing everyone else that this stuff is happening. Really? You didn't think so? No, I thought it was definitely happening, but it was about whether or not it was happening, if, if it was actually talking to Eleanor or if it was just happening. I, I fully believe. I'm, I'm Fox <laughs> Mulder here. Well, I think in the novel, it's which I haven't read, it's pretty clear that there is some actual supernatural stuff going on. But the movie, I think, leaves it kind of ambiguous that you don't know if it's just on this crazy woman's head or not. And it's all it's all definitely told from her perspective. Like we get her narration throughout. She has this voiceover throughout the movie. So it's you sort of feel like everything that you're experiencing in the film is through her her eyes through her experience of it. And, and I think that's how it gets away with being a bit ambiguous about whether this, these creepy things are actually happening. But uh, this is a great creepy thriller. This is one of those movies where, you know, I, I, uh, people would often come to me for recommendations for Halloween movies around Halloween. And I would always suggest this and the innocence as two great old black and white, spooky movies that you can watch with the whole family and, and get creeped out. The Innocence, which we've already talked about on Cinema 60, I think holds up no matter how many times I see it. This one, each time I see it, it feels, I don't know, it's it's a little less convincing each time I see it. I still really like it, and the creepy atmosphere is great. I love Claire Bloom as Theo. She's very clearly a lesbian, and she doesn't, you know, it's never yeah, my notes. My notes are like, is she gay? They're like, she's got to be gay, <laughs> right? And then it's like, after like, I think three more lines, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah never mind, never mind. <laughs> yeah, which is funny because it has no bearing on the plot whatsoever, except that she's a little more, you know, she, she oh, I she think might... it has bearing on the plot. Well, she's very comforting to Eleanor, who's freaked out by all these things that are happening in this house. And is willing to stay in her bedroom and comfort her and make sure that, that she's okay. And it, you know, there is, there is a certain way in which it has a bearing on the plot, but for the most part, it's just, you know, here's this independent woman who happens to be gay and she mentions, you know, living with this other woman. Well, maybe it's not that clear about the gender of the person she's living with, but in, you know, it makes it very clear for anybody who is, you know, willing to, <laughs> To go there, that that's uh, that she's gay and she's got a bit of a thing for Eleanor. I love the dynamics of this movie. The two lead females are great. The the males are a little, you know, Doctor Markway is a bit stodgy, not very interesting. Played by Richard Johnson and and Russ Tamblin as the nephew is kind of a little bit too much of a like frat boy type to be that entertaining. But uh, it's a great spooky movie. I think there is there is more to Theodora 
than you're giving her. But I want to say real quick that, you know, talking about you're saying the more you watch it, the less spooky it gets. I think, I mean, Wise directs the shit out of this movie. Again, the angles that are this whole thing, everything's all of the whole movie is shot from like the, with the camera below looking up and it's, it blocks out everything that's happening around them. And there's so much, it, it's so brilliant because it creates this total tension and paranoia where you just can't see you're at this weird angle and you're like, I can't see what's behind them. There's gotta be something moving behind them. And you like, you can't, you don't know, or there'll be like a shot where even if the shot is, you know, straight on to them, or at least, you know, a little bit more in the middle, more centered, there'll be a mirror behind them, you know, and you can see like, ah, oh, there's this stuff moving back, there. <laughs> you know, and like, you're just constantly like, there's all these little things to look at. And these like, or like, you know, mirrors distorting something or, you know, the, the use of anamorphic lenses in this is so brilliant. You know, like when you get these, these lenses where the, the image essentially gets compressed because of how the lens is, is shaped. And so that you get that breathing, where, uh, you know, it looks like everything's like, you know, like spreading across the screen or shrinking, uh, which he uses fully to, to uh, you know, in the in the sound design on top of it is all of it's brilliant. I love a, a scary movie where nothing's really happening. <laughs> and that's 100 percent what this is. And so that I just thought all of the it, you know, it's it's shot so well. And, and even if even I, I, you know, it's like knowing what what's happening and knowing the outcome, it doesn't like really change it for me because so much of it is just shot in such a paranoid way. It just kind of like, it just puts you in it. You know, it's like, it didn't make me jump, but, uh, it's just so much atmosphere it, down to my, my mother's favorite thing to say to me, which is in the dark, in the night, <laughs> you know, like the housekeeper is like, you know, <laughs> like, we'll never come back for you. Even if you're screaming in the dark in the night, which she says like 500 times, but even that it's like such a, like weird, you know, this sort of weird beat that you just get. And then it's like disappears. And it's like, Ooh, like what the hell? You're right. It, I mean, it is brilliantly directed and there's so much working so well in this movie. Like the atmosphere is incredible, but when you watch it a few times, a lot of the details start to get a little silly and you sort of, it's my problem with a lot of horror though. It's like, atmosphere and you know smart directorial choices you know stylish design is only gets you so far but if your story doesn't make a ton of sense and a lot of the details are like huh what <laughs> like you know when when markway's wife shows up and she doesn't believe in any of this crap and she's like oh, i'm gonna spend the night because i took a taxi all the way here and then she like you know, shows up in the wall when, you know, I mean, no sense in going into it, but none of it makes sense. But she, the wife disappears, but, but Markway's concern is not for his wife at all. It's for Eleanor and hoping that she's okay. And, you know, when you start to think about the movie, a lot of it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I kind of hate that I've seen this movie enough times that I have to pick apart some of the details like that. And it, it sort of affects my enjoyment of it. But so here's the thing, you know, like uh, to me, the the brilliance of this movie is everything that's not said. So, you know, that includes Eleanor. So I fully think this place is haunted. And but the question is, Eleanor makes it all about herself and her loneliness is the unspoken. I mean, it's it that's the clearest part uh, of her, of, of her character. 
but it's also this weight of guilt. You know, she starts to hear these voices in the house. She hears the little child who first scares her and then she starts to confront it. And, you know, it's like she derives from what she's hearing as, you know, this voice of a child who's being abused, which once she realizes what's happening suddenly is very comfortable in all of this, which to me is, is like, you know, this sort of clear flag to, okay, well, what's Eleanor been through, <laughs> uh, you know, that in the fact that she's such a depressed person. And once she starts to realize like, Oh no, this house understands my depression. Everything in that's happening here is about me. Uh, you know, she, internalizes all of this and she you know basically like you know her whole thing is she's trying to leave because she spent her whole life uh, looking after her mother who was very very needy and she never married and and you know we the first shot is is her with at her sister's house and and you know they can't stand her and she they don't even want her to leave the house because they don't think she's even functional enough to <laughs> get in a car but she, uh, you know, steals the car and she's like, this is it. I'm going out of the house. I need to get out of the house. Uh, and we later learn that, you know, she feels responsible for her mother's death, whether or not uh, she is. And, you know, she has this like guilt that she's wrestling with. And, uh, you know, she is clearly just just depressed and miserable. And then she gets to this house that's just full of misery and depression. And she feels I'm home. You know, I mean, and, and that there's a great brilliant line where she says at last something is happening to me it's like even though it's this dark unwanted attention that's the only thing that she can understand you know it's like she's lived in this misery for so so long that like this this is what speaks to her like this is even when she's trying to escape it she finds herself right back in it and so the the brilliance with of theodora is that she's totally comfortable in who she is. So she's the total inverse of Eleanor. So where Theodora is completely comfortable with herself in a world that that hates her and, and is uncomfortable with who she is, it's the opposite. It's like Eleanor is totally uncomfortable in her own little world in misery. And then she's in this house that like is calling to her and wants her. So it's like they're they're both this sort of weird, like, you know, yin and yang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even the way they dress, like Theodore is always in black and yeah. Eleanor is in white. And and that's really kind of an interesting, you know, it, it's not like a full mirror it, in it. The movie doesn't need you to know that, but it plays with that. And I think that that's really interesting. I It's just I think there's just something about like the way that the, the she's Eleanor is such a someone who's so consumed by depression that she becomes just such a horrible <laughs> person. And, you know, it's, it's main character disease is really what, what she, she's like dying. of. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, and I like that. It's interesting, you know, and for once we have someone who is sad and is pitiable and also is just like a terrible person. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It's interesting. You know, she, she does so much, uh, posturing and 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 yet even when she's trying to help herself all she's doing is just going further into her own mind and i think that there's like there's a realness to that that i find really interesting and, and even more so than than really what's happening in the house and then you know even like I, you know i won't totally spoil it but i i like the ending and i like that you know everyone gets so wrapped up in comforting her and she's just this vacuum of a person <laughs> 
there's I think the, the reason why Markway doesn't really care about his wife disappearing mm. is because number one, he thinks he knows that the ghosts have her, you know, like what he's like, you know, what is he going to do now? He has to like do a bunch of seances like he's very like specific, like he he's not going to get emotional and crazy about it. Like he's the man of science. But then the other thing is that he's just so wrapped up in Eleanor's vacuum because she is, she's a total walking vacuum, which I think is what Theodora is interested in. I don't think she has a crush in her. I think that there is something very intriguing about these people where you're like, Oh, like it's very clear what's wrong with you. You know, I know what I can say to help you. And then suddenly you find yourself just like suck dry (laughs) (laughs) and you're like, shit. Right. Like, I think that's what's so fun about this movie is that, like, you know, what's what's scariest is like dealing with some jerk like Eleanor. (laughs) Well, I think that's what makes what's happening in the movie ambiguous as to whether it's supernatural or not, because she is this sort of drama queen. Like she's she has sort of forcing everyone to be involved in her drama and go through what she's experienced. And they're all sort of drawn to like, you know, she is so convinced that this house is calling to her, that this is where she belongs. And her own story is so similar to the ghost's story in, in this house that it's like, yeah, that there is a real connection there and everybody sort of feels it. And she's so, you know, I don't know if hysterical is the right word, but she's so like high strung and putting all the attention on herself that everybody, you know, nobody can help but think, well, maybe there is something going on here. Maybe she can't be this high strung without there actually being, you know, something, something awful going on. And, and they're all kind of sucked in for that reason. And I think that the movie works on two levels for that reason. I like that about it, but you know, her, I, I thought the the voiceover narration got a little wearying for me this time. It's a little cloying. You know, they're they're just little things that I can nitpick about this movie, but it's also horror is not my genre, so I often will concentrate on on details that I I shouldn't be if I want to fully invest myself in in enjoying a horror film. So, I still highly recommend this as a good Halloween movie to watch or, you know, anytime watch if you want a, a good spooky scary movie that's all about atmosphere and suggestion and not gore and jump scares yeah watch it in the dark <laughs> in the night well here's where robert wise takes a real turn and i don't think he ever recovers from <laughs> it and it was a movie that he didn't even want. I think everyone took the, every single person involved in this sounds like they took it because they were like, let's get some money stashed away. Big production. And then we'll move right on to the thing we actually want to do. And oops, <laughs> it was like a <laughs> smash hit. Like what was it? Was this like the most popular film of the entire decade? Yeah, I, I think Sound of Music must have made more money than anything else in the 60s. I can't I can't think of anything that would have made more. That's right. Sound of Music 1965. And as I said, this was my first time ever watching this. <laughs> and uh, another one where I knew every single song, 
um most well most every single song uh and i knew the basics well there's that one crummy song that was written just for the movie that i always forget exists there there are a couple of bum songs in this but most of the songs you know yeah and and this was a movie where i i thought i knew most of what was going to happen and it surprised me in a couple of ways but i mean all right i guess i should tell you the plot of the sound of music i feel like even i even i before watching this didn't really need to hear the plot <laughs> of the sound of music but um well for a three-hour movie there really isn't much plot it's kind no. of the, <laughs> the longest the long well it actually isn't the longest movie we watched for this episode but it's got the simplest have, plot of anything we watched yet another maria who of course is julie andrews and uh she is a nun and she's too silly to be a nun <laughs> so they kick her out <laughs> Like straight up, she's just like she loves singing and she cannot tell time. So they kick her out and they say, Why don't you go babysit seven children for Captain Georg von Trapp, who was, of course, Christopher Plummer at his absolute hottest, <laughs> most smoking. He was never not evil looking, but he was he's pretty Ugh. attractive in this movie. Every single time Christopher Plummer opens a door in this movie, he's like, he like does it with his whole body, <laughs> like slams the door open and you're like, yes, sir. Anyhow. So he lives alone. His wife's dead and uh, he hates singing and dancing and music and happiness now. And, uh, but he wants his children. He, he's trying to run his house like a ship. He's a, a retired Naval officer they are in Austria and he is very Austrian. And of course the war is, is uh, looming and um, he always is, is away on business. And Maria of course is too much of a free spirit to fully listen to all of his needs and wants about running the place like a ship. And these kids are so nasty to her <laughs> and she always treats them with kindness, despite the fact that they're trying to sabotage her. And because she's so kind, she makes them cry and then they all bond and it's all lovely until he comes back with Baroness Elsa, the Schrader, who he wants to marry because she's uh, rich and attractive. Yeah. And then it becomes this bit of a love triangle where Maria doesn't even understand the concept of love, but is, is essentially falling in love with, with him and, and he's falling in love with her and he doesn't also doesn't realize it because he doesn't expect it. And uh, Elsa sees it and she sabotages everything for her in like the, the, the kindest way. <laughs> I've never, it's like barely sabotage. She just basically goes over to Maria and is like, hey, uh, you know, looks like you two would really love to, you know, get together and sit a little bit too close on the couch. And Maria's like, oh, my God, that's so scandalous. And she leaves. <laughs> Um, and yeah, this is nothing new. This is just, uh, me rambling about this movie. And then the Nazis come. <laughs> yeah. Then the Nazis come. And, uh, you know, the problem is that they're so Austrian nationalist that, uh, the idea it's not even about like, gee, those Nazis are bad. It's just more like, how dare you insult Austria by saying we're part of like the Nazi <laughs> empire. <laughs> 
And uh, yeah, and then it becomes a trying to get away to Switzerland. And uh, yeah, and at some point, Captain Von Trapp realizes that he does love music and he loves Maria. And uh, then they all sing a family song. (laughs) (laughs) Then they become the Von Trapp family singers. Yeehaw! But here's the thing. You know what? You know what, Bart? I liked it. (laughs) I did too. (laughs) The last time I sat down and watched this movie from beginning to end, I was in fourth grade. And I thought it was so long and boring and cheesy that I always had this idea that I hated this movie. Wait, you hadn't rewatched it since fourth grade? Not, not in full. Like I, I've seen pieces here and there. Like it's right, you know, it's been on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I did not expect to love every second of this movie. Like it, it works like a charm. Like there's a reason this movie was insanely popular. And so much of it has to do with Julie Andrews and how joyful she is and how she just sort of her joy and love and love of life. She's a hippie. Yeah, exactly. The singing nun. She, you know, just give her an acoustic guitar and she can solve all the problems in the world. At 65, that's that's was like prime time to get that message in. Yeah, and it sounds like the corniest thing imaginable, but it works all thanks to Julie Andrews and and also Christopher Plummer, who has this, you know, come the first half of the movie, he is, you know, a bastard. He is not a nice person. And he plays that perfectly. But to watch him melt, like the, you know, the first time he joins in singing with the family, it's like I I was pretty emotional for this whole movie and I was not expecting it (laughs) at all. Uh, And yeah, it's, it's one of those movies that no matter how hard you want to resist it, it's uh, it's Hollywood firing on all cylinders. And that's, this is all shot on location. Like maybe the Von Trapp house is not, that might be, you know, studio backlot. I'm not sure, but, it looks like it looks like it's in nature, and so much of this movie is shot in the hills of Austria, and uh, is and I think that's to have a big Hollywood musical set all in natural surroundings. It does feel like a real step forward. Like it doesn't. This movie is not studio bound at all, and it was kind of a big risk. I think. Like I'm. I. I don't know if people thought it would actually work, but. Well, it was a big risk, I think, because I mean, the musical is just was so cheesy. And, and that's the thing is like everyone knew how corny this was going into it. But uh, as you said, Julie Andrews is just I mean, everything that didn't work for me in Mary Poppins, which I, I like have no interest in ever seeing ever again, totally worked for me in this. I like believed her way more in Sound of Music. And she's just so genuine. And sweet. Mm. And it sounds like that really is just who she was. <laughs> uh, and funny enough, you know, like Christopher Plummer, he's only six years older than Julie Andrews in this. And he looks about 10 years older and she looks about 10 years younger. <laughs> like this, they're just like, they're these good polar opposites. And then plus, I mean, I just honestly, Plummer just totally charmed me in this so much. I've always liked Plummer because he's hot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be real. But like, he is so upset to be here. <laughs> he is so angry. Every time he gets mean and narrows his eyes, he gets 10 times hotter. 
And the way that he speaks to the children, it's so clear that he hates every <laughs> single one of these kids and he hates being here. And all of that makes him so much better. It makes his character so much more fun. And reading, I was like, you know, went back and was reading interviews with him about like how he always thought this mo this movie was a piece of shit. Mm. And uh, but he enjoyed, you know, Julie Andrews and and all of that. And he came around later and much later in life and said, actually, it's fine, whatever. But um, you know, it's funny because honestly, the reason he didn't want to do this is that he was a hotshot stage actor. And he thought this was all beneath him. And also the character specifically was just so boring and bland. But like the fact that he's so miserable to be there is exactly what makes him really fun yeah. and really great. Like I loved watching him in every single scene because he's just like, it, it just there was a scene where, you know, he comes back with the Baroness and they're all um, coming off. They were like in the lake. And they come out and then he's like screams at them and then they all have to assemble in front of the, on the dock and he's like goes over it and he's like speaking to these kids and he's like mocking them <laughs> in this really vicious way. And I'm like, man, I'm sure that they I'm sure the kids hated him, too, but it's so fucking funny in this movie <laughs> because this movie is just so sugar, sugary, you know, sparkly, fuzzy, fun times. And then it's like him. <laughs> yeah. I think with two other leads, it wouldn't have worked. I mean, the kids are fine, but they, you know, do what they have to do. And that's it. Eleanor Parker as the Baroness is fine, but it really is just the Julie Andrews, Christopher Plummer show. And the two of them make the whole movie the way that they, I mean, Julie Andrews and the kids, like the way that she just shows them the world, like gets them out in the world and, and, shows them how joyful life can be is it's impossible not to fall for that. Doa Deer is like great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like everything, yeah, everything she does with these kids is really fun and great and sincere and as corny and stupid. I mean, I found some of it. To, I mean, there's something really stodgy about this, even though it's out in the open and like the movie kind of feels a bit more epic than the direction does. And I think that's kind of the biggest issue that I had with it. But uh, it it does like it for what it is. It do, it does it. You know, it works totally fine. It really leans into the crowd pleasing, like just bringing a lot of the songs from the first half of the movie back in the second half. It's oh, yeah, like, constantly. OK, <laughs> yeah. it's like, OK, yeah, these are good songs. I've you know, I loved, uh, you know, I'm humming along with them. But you think, well, this you could have cut some other running time out of this movie by not doing, you know, each one of these songs three times, but right. it also doesn't feel long. Like it's a three hour movie and it, it flies by. It's got, I think there are two scenes that sort of drag the movie down. The first one is, I mean, I like the song 16 going on 17 where it's Rolf and Liesel in the gazebo, but just when you're away from Julie Andrews, the movie right. is lacking in life and you, you need her for this movie to be interesting. And then there's there's that later scene in the gazebo with where Maria and Captain Von Trapp are finally expressing their feelings for each other. And there there's that song, Something Good is the name of the song. And that is the one like really bum song in the in the whole soundtrack. Like I that song was written for the movie. It wasn't part of the original show. And they sing that to each other in the, in the gazebo. So, you know, take out the gazebo scenes and the the repeated songs. And, well, I was going to say this would be a perfect movie, but 
essentially this is a perfect movie. It's Hollywood at its best, and I can't deny it. Really? I thought the honestly, the, the gazebo stuff was fine for me. I know there, that's the only other story I have up my sleeve here is because of having seen Julie Andrews on uh, Stephen Colbert uh, in the past that she had so was saying that that, that whole um, shot, they had to shoot it in shadow because they, they kept cracking up because the lights were like making these like groaning sounds. So they would do these like intimate, like, I love you. And the lights would be like, <laughs> you know, and, and so uh, eventually Robert Wise was like, you know what? Turn the lights off. We'll shoot it. Cause you guys can't stop giggling and we won't even be able to see your face anyhow. And they, and they ended up uh, shooting it like that, which is cute. But um, I thought the whole last hour was superfluous. <laughs> like, I- it's got some suspense, I guess. It was fine. The Nazi stuff. I mean, just in general, it's like, who cares about this family? <laughs> you know, it's just he falls in love with her because she's Austrian, you know, and, and it's all about like the shame of, of Austria, the glory of Austria being overtaken by the Nazis as if that's the worst thing the Nazis did, which is fine, whatever. You know, I, I get it. It's a story that can be told, but. I kind of, I mean, I know this obviously would have never happened, but it would have been like, I, I was like legit waiting for them to die in a flaming car. <laughs> and it would have been kind of awesome. But the, that final, like their, their whole, you know, dipping out and, and the, the concert scene, all that stuff was just useless. Actually, that's the other story I got from looking at Christopher Plummer interviews is that he was pissed drunk in that whole family concert. <laughs> Uh, and he was, of course, a dub, so it wasn't like he was had to sing anyhow. So, Not a whole lot that needs to be said about this movie, but we finally gotten to it, gotten the sound of music out of the way, and I'm pleased to say that I enjoyed it far more than I expected to. I like the scene where the nun is like, bitch, get that dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was good. We all knew that Maria was uh, too good for God. She's like literally, this is literally a scene where they're like, what else does the Reverend Mother say? And she's like, get that dick. Like, that's it. (laughs) And you're like, yeah. No, the thing about Sound of Music, though, is like, there's this clear downward (laughs) fall. Like, I honestly, well, I'll save this for the end. Never mind. The next film. If you're suggesting that uh, Robert Wise's career took a downturn after The Sound of Music, I, I don't, it wasn't immediate because I think. His next film, The Sand Pebbles, from 1966. is really good. And uh, it was an you know, adaptation of a popular novel, and it was a big hit at the time. Steve McQueen plays uh, naval engine mechanic in the 20s between the wars. And uh, he doesn't like being the engineer on a big ship because it's all so military. And he's the low man on the totem pole. And he he just wants a, an engine room he can run himself. And so he he takes this transfer to this small gunboat on the, on the Yangtze River that just sort of is there to go up and down the Yangtze flexing its muscles because there's a lot of unrest in China at the time. There, you know, these um, warlords are fighting and uh, sort of before the uh, 
communist revolution and and the whole upheaval that happened then. These are the American forces that are sort of the peacekeeping forces, but they don't do anything. They just go up and down the river and show their guns to people and say, we're here, so don't cause any problems. And, you know, if you cause trouble, then America is, is here to stop you. But this boat, the the sand pebble that he gets transferred to, the San Pablo, you know, has been making this trip up and down the Yangtze for seven years and has never engaged in any kind of combat, you know, will spray their hoses at people who've gathered to make fun of them uh, going through their their military routines. But, you know, other than that, they're just this useless, you know, symbol on the on the Yangtze showing that the, you know, don't don't forget about the U.S. We're, we're here to, to keep you guys in line on the uh, on the San Pablo, the San Pebbles. They have this arrangement where there um, are a lot of Chinese coolies on board who are actually doing all the work. The soldiers on the ship don't do anything. They just sit around and drink and, and eat and get shaved every day by a Chinese barber. And uh, they, they like it that way. They like having nothing to do. But Steve McQueen, as uh, Jake Holman, gets into the engine room and there are Chinese laborers who are who are running the engine room, like the U.S. soldier who's who should be doing it is, you know, it's like, oh, I just I just let those guys do it. And Steve McQueen is all like, no, no, this is this doesn't work for me. And, you know, he immediately is at odds with the captain, Richard Crenna or Lieutenant, Lieutenant Collins, and uh, says, we, we need to why can't we get these Chinese people off the ship? We're taking advantage of them. And, and uh, I, I want this engine room to myself. And he's sort of anti-authority. He just wants to do his own thing and, and thinks that that this ship will be his opportunity to just you know, tinker with the engine and, and not have to listen to the officers tell him what to do. And when he finds out that's not the case, that he's got a whole new situation to, to deal with here, his anti-authoritarian uh, feelings sort of come to the forward and his uh, lieutenant wants to get him off the ship as soon as possible. And yeah, eventually he, um, the, uh, uh, try, trying to get the politics right here. Uh, which is <laughs> which is want? hard because uh, part of what I really enjoyed about this movie is that what's going on politically in China is a total mystery to all of these U.S. soldiers who are going up and down the river. Like it's total chaos, and they're like, "Oh, we're just doing what we're told to do," and nobody knows really why they're there or what's happening. And then you know the the political situation gets even more complicated when the Chinese nationalists are uh, taking up arms against the communist forces in China and there's and there's it's a very clear divide you know amongst the Chinese people and the w one thing they can agree on is that the American imperialists are the enemy so the San Pablo gets instructions not to you know no matter what happens no matter how the Chinese taunt them or, or try and get them to engage in combat do not fire under any circumstances but you know then the Chinese people like torture one of Holman's, you know, the, the, the guy that Holman had running the, his engine, like his, the, this, the one Chinese laborer who, who he really, you know, had taken a shine to. And, and, uh, that's sort of the basic setup. It's this, the, uh, this, this U S ship that's not even, you know, this old rundown ship. It's a small gunboat that can't even do much damage sort of becomes this, this pawn between the, uh, the communists and, and, uh, and the nationalists in China, and 
the U.S. soldiers are, you know, are just there trying to do good. They think they're like helping, but they really don't understand the political situation at all and are really just making things worse with everything they do. And what it boils down to is this really, this movie is clearly talking about what was happening in Vietnam at the time and the sort of how American imperialism has gotten the country into trouble in Vietnam in just the same way. So, you know, we're there to flex our muscles and we say we're against the communists, but America really has no place being there. And, you know, they're not helping anybody, no matter, you know, how much they, they try and convince themselves that they're doing the right thing. And there's no heroism there. America just doesn't belong there at all. And I think what Robert Wise does so well in this movie is just really capture the chaos of the situation and and show how these soldiers who are just doing their jobs just have no idea what's going on and they're trying to do the right thing but they have no idea what the right thing is and i think i think the movie works it really i don't know what what did you think of this movie um <laughs> it's it's a weird movie it's it's interesting because i thought that it was kind of cool to have this such a big production that questions whether or not Americans are doing the right thing, I think is neat. And for the most part, every time Steve McQueen tries to strike out and do something independently, it's actually a kind of a mistake. Like there's that really memorable uh, and, and pretty gruesome scene where, um, you know, one of the Chinese workers McQueen insists that he wants to fix the engine by himself. Like I actually, I really like how McQueen loves his little engine. He has a cute little moment where he says, hello engine when he gets his own special engine and he doesn't want to have any help uh, from any of the Chinese workers. But um, this is a movie for boat nerds, you know, like the way that the train was for train lovers. This oh, yeah. movie really gets obsessive about how a gunboat engine works and really goes into a lot of detail and I was fascinated like I don't yeah, care that about that stuff, stuff at all but I yeah when they really were, were explaining how an engine works and really getting into the nitty-gritty of it I was like yeah I could watch this for another three hours well there's this one scene that like you know I can't I couldn't explain really what's happening despite having watched this movie and it definitely tells you but um where McQueen you know is he's fighting with this sort of head uh you know Chinese worker and the guy insists on fixing this like piston. The whole lead up to that is kind of fun too. Yeah. I got anytime he's really talking about the, sh the ship's engine. I, I was much more awake and alert than <laughs> the rest of it. But um, yeah, just that this guy ends up getting crushed uh, on the ship because of a, uh, just a, a workplace incident really is what it comes down to. It's not really anyone's fault specifically. And um, it's gruesome and it's messed up and it's really horrible and horrific, but it's neat. And it's, and it's neat because of the fact that it's just surprising to, to see uh, in a, in a movie, honestly, in the sixties, I just, it, it's like, it's like a real kind of um, gnarly death. And uh, I just like this dynamic between this sort of how to outman each other <laughs> which is really what a lot of this comes down to, but it doesn't, that works really well when they're in the engine. It doesn't work so well when they're doing the whole prostitute in the bar stuff, which that bar looks like it's out of like an Archie cartoon. It just looks so fake. Yeah, definitely a 
crummy set. <laughs> yeah, cardboard set, you know, and it's all like in sepia um, with like the fakest looking, you know, it's like they try to make it look dingy and it just looks like someone took a paintbrush and like, you know, sprayed some, flexed some black everywhere. So every time it was in that bar, it really lost me. Every time it leaves the bar, it was much more engaging. The scene where Pohan, who is the Chinese worker that uh, McQueen ends up finally training because everyone insists you have to you know work with these guys or else this is their whole reason for living it's their rice bowl is what they keep saying and so finally he says okay if i'm going to train this guy i'm going to teach him not just press this button when this light is on i'm going to teach him why this works and so there's a whole you know scene where he's trying to explain you know in both of them in broken english how an engine works and so it's like kind of going into all of that and he really trains the guy up the guy actually knows what he's doing and then of course you know he staggers on shore a little bit too long and gets another like shockingly brutal death uh on screen i really like cannot overstate how messed up this death is i've seen photos of this in real life because they're like the kind of rape of man king stuff that everyone wants to hide but where they tie a guy up and they just like cut him across the chest with a knife or swords and stuff. And it's just like pure torture and like the, just the long agonizing death. And they like show this on screen in 1966. I'm like, dude, that stuff goes viral on Twitter. Whenever like one guy is like, you know, finds out that these photos even exist and they're, and even like those black and white photos, it's, horrific and gruesome and obviously those are real photos but even seeing the movie version is like oh my god like i can't i can't imagine that this was okay i mean but this is another movie where like they uh use all of these slurs and all of this like bizarre uh sexual assault and all this stuff and it's like that's okay to show but you know <laughs> other things but the thing that really kind of bugged me about this movie though is that it just really dehumanizes its chinese characters and that's what the soldiers are doing. It's like, you know, it's what all the Americans are doing and how they think of them. But the movie does it a bit too much too. I, I just didn't, you know, you don't really care about any of the Chinese characters, even though part of the realization of this film, as we were saying, is this, you know, realizing that, Oh, maybe America is in the wrong here and we're sticking our nose in something we don't belong in. I think it makes a good effort to make Pohan an interesting character. You care about him. I th think the problem is that he's the character is gone a little too early, like and and goes in this horrific way where the the nationalists are trying to get a rise out of the U.S. Army and get him to engage in combat so they can declare the U.S. as an enemy. But I think they humanize Pohan and do a really good job with that. And I already like Mako, who's you know in like Conan the Barbarian and a lot of. 80s movies that I grew up with. So it was fun to see him and, you know, as, as a young man in, the, in this movie. It also tries to humanize Mei Li, the prostitute that Steve McQueen's friend Frenchie falls in love with. You know, she's sort of an indentured prostitute. Like she's sort of owned by this guy who gave her money. She, she stole some money to get away and she, it had to be paid back so that she owes her pimp, played by James Hong was $200 and um, French was like, oh, I'm going to get that $200 for you and free you. And there's a whole love story there. And they, they really try and get us invested in Mei Li's plight. And I don't think they quite succeed with her as well as they do with Pohan. But there's definitely an attempt to make the Chinese characters interesting. 
I think. <laughs> I mean, May Lee works because she speaks fluent English. And so you get a little bit more of what's happening on her interior. All the Chinese men are just like, they all speak in broken English. There's never a time where they're speaking in Chinese with subtitles. Like we never get to, we just don't know who they are. You know, like you kind of, you, you like them the way that you like an animal character in, in movies, quite frankly, because they're like, they're endearing, but they're also like totally, you know, they can only communicate up to a point. And I just, that, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, like I felt like there could have been, I know it's asking a lot to have subtitles in a sixties movie but I mean, they even could have had scenes where it's like the two of them, two Chinese workers speaking in English together. I don't know. I just would have, I, I wanted a little bit more than just like, I'm a man and this, I need to do something or else I die. You know, like that's, that's kind of all you get from them. And then, I mean, the stuff with Maley too, it's like at Richard Attenborough as, as Frenchie and he, I didn't buy you. And then he forces her to marry <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. She she professes her love for him, but you're thinking, uh, no, it's there's nothing very lovable about this guy. He did a nice thing for you. Yeah, and that's enough. You know? We we all know that you really just want to get the hell out of there, right? <laughs> that you don't care about him at all. But I mean, I guess you know, again, it it ends on an interesting. It does existential crisis pretty well. You know, it ends on an interesting note. I, I really like the final scene. Well, the final line in this movie is is the most famous thing about it. Steve McQueen. The scene's famous enough for it that I can spoil it, yeah. right? In his um, you know, his dying breath, he's he says, "What the hell happened?" Which I think was you know really sort of taken up as a you know sort of a a motto in a way of the anti-Vietnam War movement. But it just really ends in a like powerful and, and shocking place. It feels very central to what was going on in the 60s in 1966 as this totally alienated soldier who doesn't know what the hell he's doing in this foreign country, why he's there, why he's dying and what he's dying for. And it's powerful. I mean, it's probably the most explicit anti-Vietnam movie that that Hollywood ever produced at the time, but it's not, you know, it never specifically says that that's... Well, it wasn't on purpose. You know, the novel came out in 62. When they were shooting it, I don't think the stuff in Vietnam had been as overtly terrible, but it was just a great example of timing. Yeah, I, I have to believe that that's a big reason why this three-plus-hour movie ended up being as big a hit as it was it just seemed so attuned to the times like just perhaps by coincidence but also captured the sort of anti-government you know questioning authority sort of spirit of the times like that's there in the novel like no even if there wasn't a uh, you know vietnam war going on at the time that that this was a clear parallel to there was still the sentiments in the novel and in the story is exactly the kind of anti-authoritarian feeling that was uh, was going on in 1966 and i could see why young people were were attracted to this movie and also older folks who liked a good war movie would be interested in this movie and why it would appeal to a wide range of people i mean it says quite a bit of what you know even lawrence of arabia has to say but it's more explicit and i do appreciate that in this film it's also fun to see steve mcqueen like pre-bullet because he still feels like he's kind of feeling his way. 
You know, like McQueen, he's always like, uh, there's a great posturing to McQueen. And I feel like every role he takes, he kind of builds upon his own personality. And I liked him as a bit of a, a bumpkin in this one. Yeah. He's got that smile that, you know, every time he smiles, he's, he looks like a cartoon character, which is yeah. so at odds with the manly persona that he... That he gets at the, in the end of the decade. I mean, like, he has it, but... Whereas The Sound of Music didn't feel it's three hours. It flew by pretty quickly. I thought you felt every minute of this three hours, but it didn't feel too long. Yeah. The next movie we're going to talk about, though, is... <laughs> It's three hours long, another three-hour epic, and it feels far, far longer than that. Star, 1968. If the lady's naughty but proper, if the lady's chicer than chic, if her escorts must wear a topper, and each man's the man of the week, if she rides around in a brand-new foreign car, the chances are the lady I didn't even know this movie existed. <laughs> I only knew it existed because it is often pointed to as the end of the Hollywood musical, even though it came out. I think Hello, Dolly was a hit came out after this. This movie is held up as an example of, yeah, musicals were done in Hollywood. Yeah. And for good reason. Just look at this movie. It's a biopic about Gertrude Lawrence, who was an English comedian actress singer dancer who uh made it both in in the uk and in the u.s i think her what would her most famous thing be i guess the king and i i mean for my generation i guess like this is clear i feel like she's very clearly a um i guess she was in pygmalion but but in which makes a lot of sense but on stage, uh, though, like I don't yeah, think no, no, I'm talking in, about like her as yeah. a human. Um, I, this is like a, a forgotten celebrity at this point. You know what I mean? Like you have to be like a Broadway person to know even who this biopic's about. And I, I always find this kind of interesting when you have some like big giant star that everyone of a specific age knows, and then like one year everyone's born later, and they yeah. not know who the fuck that person is. Uh, so it's always kind of interesting. But yeah, so this movie, this film is told through a newsreel that is being cut about her life, about Gertrude's life. And she is watching it as an older woman. She died young, so she's not that old, but she's watching it as, you know, as later in life. And she's commenting on everything as she sees it, the newsreel being cut in a screening room. But then the movie's also told through like full color flashbacks. So that's actually really cool. I think that the opening structure of this is actually kind of neat. And you can see a bit of, of Wise trying to find some way to make this anything other than a straightforward telling. The newsreel looks really good. He does a good job capturing the look of the newsreel and the and the time of the that the story is set, but Right. Which is like, you know, the early nineteen hundreds. Uh, you know, 1920s and um, which, well, that was her heyday and the, the, you know, whatever. Anyhow. So uh, other than that, pretty standard biopic, we see her from when she started on the vaudeville stage with her father and then working her way up to being a chorus girl. Uh, she's always trying to steal the spotlight 
as a chorus girl, you know, she's always just trying to make a name for herself. She runs into Noel Coward, who happens to be a childhood friend, and he's also working his way up the ladder. Uh, she finally gets a big break by performing in drag while pregnant, which, uh, P.S., she, she marries her first husband, who's a stage manager, who advocates for her, but he's also a drunk. So that marriage doesn't last that long, but she gets this big break when she performs this song, Burlington Birdie. Everyone knows that one. So um, she, you know, she does this great performance and that's her big break. Then she captures the attention of this like nobleman guy who basically my fair ladies her uh, from, uh, you know, a cockney. She has this really thick cockney accent. By the way, she's Julie Andrews. I don't think I said that. This is another Julie Andrews vehicle here. And, she becomes from going from a cockney to a posh upper crust society gal. And uh, then Noel Coward gets her her own show. And now she's finally made it. And um, then, of course, is the inevitable downfall from the realization that fame doesn't fix misery or loneliness. And there's like still an hour and a half left to this movie, <laughs> <laughs> which is basically she meets her second husband. She dumps a society dude, despite the he gives her this like a ball or diamond ring. Well, she doesn't really dump anybody. She's got like three or four or five men Gentleman all like on a, yeah on a on a string who are sort of there at her bidding. You know, if if ever she decides that that she's willing to marry one of them, they would you know in a heartbeat would uh, would give themselves to her. Right, and then and and. Throughout this time, she also realizes that she's completely flat broke because all of this, like her, her spending, she, she's like spends way too much money on extravagances. Her personal assistant didn't want to deal with all the bills. And so she just tossed them out. So she gets sued. She has to go to court and, you know, realizes and this far forces her to work even harder over time. And then there's her whole thing with her daughter who doesn't want to even see her anymore because she's just so work focused and they live, you know, daughter lives in the UK, she's in the U S and she's making it there. And then she meets her future husband, the guy who she does marry for the second time, which is uh, Richard Aldrich, who uh, is like a theater producer. And she meets him at a party where she's pissed drunk and she like insults him to his face. And uh, the last hour of this movie is the two of them being just horrendously rude to each other. <laughs> and, and somehow that's true love. You know, that's, that's it. That's like, this is like, you know, the romance of all time. And then there's a final musical number that is just batshit insane. And we don't even get to her dying or anything. It just kind of like ends. Yeah, man. But it, it definitely doesn't end soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> It really like I was an hour and 20 minutes into this thing and I was like, this is almost over. Right. And I realized I still had an hour and 40 minutes left to go. And I was miserable. I mean, I already hate biopics as a rule. Like there's no story in a biopic. It's like, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And I just can't take that at all. Like I need there to be a point to what I'm watching. And there's, you know, if you're just telling, especially like an unknown celebrity, like I didn't know anything about Gertrude Lawrence's life. And the fact that Julie Andrews is doing a phenomenal job recreating her stage performances that made her a huge star. Like sure. Julie Andrews can do that just fine, but I didn't care. Like none of these, 
performances were that inherently interesting to me. Like it showed off Julie Andrews' talent, but I would have preferred if Julie Andrews was playing some kind of character that I could be interested in. That's it. This movie is so obsessed with telling us how she's talented and showing us what how great she was on stage that they never explain why we should give a shit about the rest of her life, especially given the runtime. And I, I couldn't, I just kept thinking about Funny Girl, which is yeah. the same movie. <laughs> but, <laughs> but so much better. But so much better. And directed and, by William Wyler, who I I never, I, I compared Robert Wise to him earlier in the episode. But uh, yeah, Wyler pulled it off with Streisand, but Wise did not. And yeah, and Funny Girl has its faults too, but it's just way more charming. But we also get to know more about like Fanny Bryce and that, like we get to know more about what made her as a person interesting. And so like, this is just so focused on like, well, if you saw her on stage, you would have gotten it. And it's like, well, we, we can't <laughs> like, I can understand showing like, you know, some set pieces of her being on stage. You know what I mean? Like something where, and then she did this performance and her life changed. Then yes, let's see the performance. But like, there's just nothing about all we see is that she's a workaholic and she's miserable. And fine <laughs> even I, finally julie andrews can't even save this you know and maybe it's just because she's also not the best at playing miserable i don't know it was like very cardboard cut out i never got a real sense of who this person was i also feel like part of the problem with this movie was that it was designed around julie andrews and robert wise and you know the producers and the screenwriter were all like well let's have her play gertrude lawrence it would be perfect like she could do all these numbers really well but it was this was not a proven property like everything else we watched for this episode was him adapting a hit play or a hit musical or a hit novel and this is just created from the ground up and i don't think well i think this was his passion thing I think this is what he wanted to do for years. And then he had to keep doing Sound of Music in order to even get this one made, which is even more confusing. Because here's my thing is, look at West Side Story and then look at Star and tell me which one came out first. Because yeah. this just feels so stodgy and so like studio bound. And, and it feels like so backwards from where he starts. And I don't know if that was... It feels like maybe that was like a sound of music thing. Like he knew that like, okay, people like stodginess. That was such a huge hit. And I can understand why he would even come to that conclusion and second guess himself and end up making a movie that looks like this. But it just, it doesn't work at all. The twenties were hot at the time though, you know, Bonnie and Clyde oh, sure. thoroughly modern Millie. And I think that he sort of thought that he had a hit on his hands having it set in the 20s because that's what everybody was interested in. So it didn't seem like a pet project that finally got to be made. It felt like it was trying to take, uh, you know, several different proven commodities and combine them into this thing without like any care for what the story might be. Well, this got nominated for several awards, didn't it? Well, I don't know. I mean, the, the art direction's pretty impressive and the costumes. Oh, there's some amazing apartments and <laughs> i love her gold and silver room where like the wallpapers reflective it was mm -hmm. it was great that was insane loved it i also like um i like when they're like in the algonquin like they go they got all these like sort of recreations of famous places in like new york or whatever is a lot of fun then her whole like yellow face american performance oh, yeah. <laughs> you're like oh my god 
Yeah, it was basically the Miley story from uh, Sand Pebbles right. told as a mini musical. Don't, the Noel Coward was very good. Yeah, he did a good job. Daniel Massey. I think he's related to him, Noel Coward. Is he? I read that. Oh, I, I didn't know that, but he looks so much like Raymond Massey that I knew that he had to be the son of Raymond Massey, but otherwise I didn't know any connection. Well, I think there, it was, he's his godfather. Oh. Noel Coward was. So he could study him up close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he does a great job. Like you see, I think he was actually more, more fun than she was, but it, but again, it's like, because he's like sitting there reflecting on things. He's the only voice of reason in the entire movie. And there's not a single time in this film where she has a thought in her own head besides I'm going to be a star. <laughs> you know, it's the whole thing is it's the emphasis on her desire to be a star. And we don't get anything about what's happening in her head other than that. And this, it hints not- at certain things with like with her daughter, when she's on vacation, her daughter goes home and she like says, I'm, I need to be alone for a while. And then she has a second. No, you know, she can't be by herself. She can't not have attention. She can't be alone with her own thoughts. She needs some kind of company. She needs a man. She, you know, there's something there about this drive for startup, needing the love of thousands to get satisfaction, but it doesn't do anything with that. It just sort of hints at it here and there and doesn't turn it into anything interesting. And there, there could have been something there. Yeah, there could have been like, that's the thing. I don't think you need to know who this person was. The what. That Parisian clown song, I knew, but I don't know how I knew it. <laughs> but that was interesting. But you don't, I don't think you have to know who this, I mean, because look at like, I don't know how many people really know who Fanny Bryce was that are watching it today. You know what it is because you, you know who Barbara Streisand is. Right. So it's like, I, you know, I don't think you have to, you have to even care. It's just that the script is just for, again, for the runtime, there's no justification for how long this is, for how little we even care about this person. And then that ending, man, I'm tempted to say, go Google the final number to watch it on YouTube. But at the same time, I feel like, you know what? I think you should also suffer through this film and then be rewarded with the final number. I don't know. It's not much of a reward for what you've had to sit through. It is the definition of camp. It's like like a circus themed number and the outfits are incredible. (laughs) She's in this like sparkly skin suit. She jumps through a ring of fire (laughs) in a sparkly cat suit and everyone else is dressed like a clown in glitter. It It is the definition of camp. If you looked up camp in the dictionary, it should be a referral link to the YouTube video of this song. If the whole movie had the kind of energy that that number did, I might have enjoyed it. Maybe not at three hours long, but I would have enjoyed it more. Which is not to say this number is good. It's it, no, it's, it's terrible. atrocious, <laughs> but <laughs> it's impressive how campy and awful it is. Exceedingly. So there we are. Robert Wise, a star! Exclamation point. And it's it's sort of interesting to see the trajectory of the Hollywood musical through his career, how it starts off with a bang. In 61, musicals were still a going concern, and uh, he made one of the best ever made with West Side Story. Musicals, at least traditional Hollywood, you know, Broadway-based musicals were on their way out, sort of taken over by rock and roll and, and the Beatles and that sort of thing. But 
He had a surprise hit with uh, with Sound of Music right in the middle of the 60s where Hollywood thought, wait a minute, we can still do this. We can still make musicals and make bank. So there was another wave of these big, you know, lumbering musicals because Hollywood thought because of Sound of Music that they could still make money off of them. But it was really just other than like Funny Girl or and Hello Dolly, the, you know, Barbara Streisand, you know, sort of gave us a little blip of hope at the end that the musical could keep going. But really, it's just like Star was the uh, the end of the line for the Hollywood musical. And Robert Wise was behind all, all three of those tent poles, benchmarks, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, deeply impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even just this decade is insane. Yeah. But but then that I just I feel so like the last three films feel like they should should have come before the first three. Yeah, there's like this real backslide. Not Sand Pebbles, though. That feels so perfectly 1966 to me. The subject matter, anyway, the the direction, the style of it, the way it looks. Yeah, like it feels like he went from out in the world to studio bound and it should have been the opposite. But his, his, you know, touches on all of these, uh, you know, even Star again. I mean, like, there's just, there's bits of it where you're like, yeah, this is smartly directed. Like, this is an interesting shot or a beautifully laid out set or something. You know, you're like, okay, like, there's talent behind this. It just didn't work. But at least I I came out of this thinking, like, you know, Robert Wise, what a, what a guy. (laughs) Yeah, he didn't do too much after this. I mean, he did. The Andromeda Strain, I guess, not too long after Star, which is a bit of a hit. Star Trek, the motion picture at the end of the 70s, and and that was about it. Which is my least favorite of the Star Treks. (laughs) What do we conclude about Robert Wise? I feel mostly just a, a, a sense of relief that we've taken down a few of the biggest movies of the 60s. That was weighing on me, how many of these huge films we hadn't gotten to. And this episode took down a bunch of them. Well, you were asking at the beginning of the episode what was the the connection between all of these films, which uh, we always love to come up with, even if it's pulled out of our asses. But the one thing that I always enjoy about his movies is that he is always trying to push a boundary somewhere in some way. And I don't think he ever he doesn't ever phone it in of all the movies that I've seen him do. And now, granted, I haven't seen all of them. There's always something really interesting. There's an interesting hook. There's an interesting kind of progressive view on something. And and he's always trying to push the envelope and create something new or, or put two things together that you might not have thought. And, you know, even in The Sound of Music, you can see that. Again, it's like the fact that he let people bring in that touch of realness that he that he left in Plummer being kind of a prick to this children or like that you know Julie Andrews isn't totally sugar and spice like you know I don't know like there there's just there's touches of reality in everything that he does here and I really enjoy that and he's always interesting to watch that's kind of what I'm coming out of this thinking I mostly think that he is a smart director who can make the most of the material he's given and with the proven property he you know makes a brilliant movie and with a movie like star where the script probably wasn't worth shooting he made a pretty movie with some entertaining numbers i guess but it wasn't a good movie but what the, you know making the most out of what he has that's what i mean though he's like he's 
never looking at something and trying to phone it in. Like he's, he's always trying to do something interesting and whether it's choosing a good script or shooting something in a dynamic way, he gets there. I think he did kind of lose his way. Like having not expecting the sound of music to be such a towering hit. He, uh, may not have known what to do with himself exactly after that because it feels very functional, but it mostly has to do with the stars that he chose. And, you know, it doesn't feel as... It definitely isn't pushing any boundaries except for bringing the musical out into nature. It doesn't seem like it's doing anything very new except being the perfect vehicle for Julie Andrews, who is unbelievably talented. Well, but that by you saying except you're you're admitting that he does push some boundaries. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I mean. It, that that's what's cool about him is that it's like it can be as it can be this sort of standard rote film, but he's looking to the future. He's looking forward, and I appreciate that. He tries to find something real in what he's doing, and that's fun to find in a director when they really don't need to be doing that. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a it's a touch of autourism. I don't know if he's an auteur, but but there is a touch of autourism in him. But he also never seems to lose sight of trying to give the audience what they want. Right. And that's probably anti autourist in a way. Yeah, I don't think I, I wouldn't call him one, but he's taken aspects of it. Solid director. I feel like we have to sing ourselves out. How do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the what's the sound of music song about goodbye everyone, good night. So long, farewell. Go, 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 go. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.